Now turning with me to Matthew chapter 7 for our New Testament Scripture reading. Our sermon text this morning will be the first six verses of the chapter, but I'd actually like us to read the first 12 verses for broader context. Matthew chapter 7, we'll read verses 1 to 12. Judge not, so that you not be judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is God's word. Let us go before the Lord. In prayer, our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we do come uh, to this next section in Your Word, we pray that You would illuminate our hearts by the work of Your Spirit and grant us the wisdom needed to do those things You command us to do and to believe those things You command us to believe. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. A number of years ago, I remember hearing a particular preacher preaching on this passage. He made this particular comment as... He was reflecting on the culture around us. He said if you were to ask somebody a generation ago what the most quoted Bible verse was, 30, 40 years ago, perhaps you would have gotten something like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And whosoever would believe on Him would not perish and have everlasting life. The pastor followed up and said, if you were to ask somebody today what is the most quoted or perhaps misquoted Scripture text today, he said it's probably this one we have before us. Do not judge. Certainly seems to be the modern mantra of the day from John Lennon's Imagine to Tupac's dictum that only God can judge me to the coexist bumper stickers that seem to be on the back of every Subaru here in the valley, there is an underlying ethos that you have no right to tell me that what I am doing is wrong. Simply to utter that is to be judgmental. I was getting gas at the gas station the other night, and the fellow pumping my gas had a hoodie, the back of the hoodie. He said, who are you to judge me? I wasn't even talking to you. I was asking how you were doing. He didn't have an 
any ill attitude towards me, but that was what was written in essence on the back of his coat. Well, I think as we come before this particular passage this morning, we have to ask ourselves, is that what Jesus is telling us? Is he calling for us to shrug our shoulders at sin and to say, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Might I suggest this morning that if Matthew 7 verse 1 is the most quoted verse, we might also add that it is perhaps the most misquoted verse in this day and age. Here we find before us and here one greater than Solomon who in all of his wisdom, him who is the fullness of wisdom, teach us how to exercise wisdom and how we live and interact with others in this world. And here our Savior warns us actually against two extremes. Think of the, these first six verses as twin tracks that are intended to keep us on the straight and narrow. Those first five verses deal with the problem of judgmental attitudes, but first six, I think, also deals with the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, the problem of indiscriminate behaviors. So we might simply divide these first six verses into two parts, logs and dogs. Verses 1 to 5, that of logs, and verse 6, the matter of dogs. It rhymes, so it's easy to remember. Here in these first five verses, Jesus gives a very straightforward, or what at least on the surface appears to be a very straightforward command. Do not judge. The command seems simple enough. And the purpose, of course, he gives is so that you will not be judged. So we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus offering us some form of legal loophole for the final day of judgment? Well, if I don't judge anybody, then on the final day, the Lord will go, wait, good job. You can go ahead and pass go and collect your $200. That's not what Jesus is doing here. In fact, what Jesus is iterating here is, in fact, not a new principle that uh, we have not already seen. I used a lot of negatives there. What Jesus is saying something that he's already repeated before in this sermon. You think of what Jesus has given in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful. Why? For they shall receive mercy. You think of the Lord's prayer. that We pray to forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. For if you do not forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father in heaven will not forgive you. As we've seen in those previous passages, it is not a causal relationship that your forgiveness is contingent upon how well you forgive others, yet there is a correlation that is going on here. The forgiven man forgives. The one who has received mercy knows how to extend mercy. And here Jesus gives that same reciprocal relationship The point that Jesus is making here, so he is not saying not to distinguish right and from wrong, not to make certain judgment calls. What Jesus is condemning is a critical spirit. In fact, we might put it like this, paraphrasing what Jesus is commanding. Do not be judgmental. But then we also still have to clarify what is meant by that. I think we all recognize 
the type of person who is overly critical. Perhaps you recognize it in your own heart. I recognize it so much in mine. Sometimes I like to refer to certain types of people as the bird dog. The type of person who wants to point out what is wrong with everyone else. I remember going on a home visit a number of years ago. Uh, visiting with a particular family. And as soon as I got there, I wanted to see how they were doing. They gave me a stack of papers. What was wrong with everybody else in the congregation? I'm like, oh, wait, I just want to see how you're doing. See, there's something wrong with having an overly critical spirit. An overly judgmental attitude that looks down on others. You think of the parable that Jesus gives of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two sinners walking into church. One recognizes he's a sinner. The other doesn't. Pharisee walks in. Everything looks squeaky clean on the outside. All of his prayer, content of his prayer, what's the focus? It is all about him. Lord, I thank you that I am not like this sinner sitting right next to me. Pharisee has lost sight of who God really is. All the Pharisee has in his vision is a mirror of himself or a mirror of what, who, who he thinks he really is. And yet it is the tax collector who really sees the kind of person that he really is. And all he says is, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's not concerned with the person next to him. He's concerned about himself. See, the person who is truly forgiven is not going to judge others because he knows that God's perfect righteousness levels the playing field. We have no reason to boast. If we have no reason to boast, we have no cause for judging others in harsh, critical ways. You think of the old saying that if you dish it out, it will be dished right back to you. Or uh, more appropriately, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen. Jesus is introducing here, just reminding us that the day of judgment is coming. If you want to start introducing these, uh, um, these, these, these standards that you're setting up and judging others, well, it's going to be meted right back out to you. Because, let's be clear, none of us are perfect. You think of a parent parenting two children and one sibling mistreats the other. The parent says to the older child who's mistreating his younger sister, how do you like that if somebody did that to you? What if I, if, what if I treated you the same way you're treating your little sister? That's essentially what Jesus is illustrating here. And it really drives to the, the, the point home that we see later on in verse 12. The law and the prophets hang on this thing to do as others as you would have them do to you. We need to remember that God will treat us as we have treated our neighbor. Right? Do we relentlessly criticize our neighbor in our heart or with our mouth? Or do we seek his good in restoration? Again, notice that distinction. There is a recognition when somebody does wrong. It's not to gloss over it in the sense of saying, well, nobody's perfect. The matter is, how do you respond appropriately when somebody sins against you? Jesus describes for us what it looks like, what we should do. 
in verses 3 to 5, he gives this illustration, a rather humorous illustration of a guy who has a piece of sawdust in his eye, and the guy walks up to him as he has a giant two-by-four stuck in his. The guy with the two-by-four says, hey, you got, you got this little piece of sawdust in your eye. Let me help get that out. I think we all recognize the problem what's going on there. It's, it's this kind of Again, it's, I think, a humorous illustration intended to show the problem with the overly critical spirit. I think even modern secular psychology recognizes this to a certain extent, the notion of projection or transference. You know, how often are our biggest annoyances in others the very sins that we refuse to acknowledge in our own lives? You know, Scripture, I think, goes farther, farther than modern psychology, Because it teaches us that when we fail to deal with the big sins in our own lives, we are unable to deal with even the smaller sins in the lives of others. Think of, for instance, the story of David and Bathsheba. Here's the king of Israel who sees another man's wife and wants her and takes her, commits adultery with her, gets her pregnant, has her husband murdered, and then takes her as his wife. And one day, the prophet Nathan walks into the king's court and tells a story and says, King, I just heard a story of a poor sheep farmer who only had one sheep and a rich sheep farmer who had many sheep stole the poor man's only sheep. What should be done? What's David's response? That man should be put to death. Not that man should be restored, the one sheep, that had been lost to him. David immediately moves for the execution of this individual. The problem was not that David had judged. David was the king. It was his duty to adjudicate between right and wrong. The problem was that David's own unrepentant sin had so distorted his ability to adjudicate properly. He was not able to judge as he should have. He now overcompensated in light of his nagging sense of shame and guilt because of the sin in which he, which he had hidden from God and from others. And so Nathan calls him out on his sin and says, You man, you, O king, are the man. David realizes what he had done. So much of the latter half of David's reign demonstrates a king, a kingdom that is fraught with inaction and poor choices. From that moment on, almost all the way to the end of his reign, almost, David is a man who's not able to make any type of wise or sound decision. (coughs) And because David had rendered such an outlandish judgment, Nathan says that that judgment will be rendered to him. The sword shall never depart from your house. David had reaped what he had in fact sown. There's a certain principle here that sin blinds us. Unconfessed sin renders us unable to discriminate properly by becoming too harsh or perhaps by becoming too lenient. (coughs) Excuse me. You think of the guilty conscience. 
how it renders us unable to help fellow sinners. It renders one either volatile or impotent. You think of a pastor who might be in the midst of committing adultery secretly and nobody knows of it. And then he hears of another situation of adultery in the flock. It's his duty to deal with it. But because of his own guilty conscience, he's either going to come on down too hard (coughs) or he's going to become too lenient because his conscience has stricken him. He is not able to render proper judgment. His guilty conscience has rendered him impotent to act. Jesus' point here is he is not giving us a legal loophole for the day of judgment. So long as you don't distinguish between right and wrong, so long as you just simply coexist and live and let live, then everything's going to be okay on the last day. Jesus is not telling us that if you shrug your shoulders for us to shrug our shoulders indifferently towards sin. Jesus is not telling us that we should never distinguish right from wrong. Jesus is not even saying that we should never remove the speck from our brother's eye. Notice what Jesus says here. There's a certain thing you should do before you remove it. He's not saying don't do it. Rather, he's saying that the very first thing you need to do is you need to reckon with the sin in your own heart. First and foremost, the priority that Jesus gives is a prioritization on self-examination. Verse 5, first you remove the two-by-four from your eye, then you can see clearly to remove the speck. This is really practical, right? How many of us, when hearing the Word, begin to elbow our wives and going, I think you really need to listen to what the preacher's saying. You kind of look down the pew, give the stink eye to somebody. Going, man, I really hope Jim Bob listened to what the pastor just said. (laughs) No, the sermon is directed to each of our own hearts, and the first thing we need to do is examine our own hearts individually. Both as individuals and as a congregation. That's what Peter writes. Judgment must first begin at the house of God before it goes out to the nations. Paul writes to the church of Galatia, if anyone's entangled in a sin, those who are spiritual are called to restore the fallen one in a spirit of gentleness. Not in a critical spirit. No bird dog in here. No Orwellian big brother type of rats here where the goal is to rat out somebody who has done wrong so you can feel better about yourself. Rather, the goal is to mutually encourage one another and hope for their restoration. And of course, if they refuse to repent, there is a process, a painful process of dealing with that in terms of church discipline. But we all must recognize that the cross levels the playing ground of history. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. And so Paul calls us to bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And he adds, if you think you're something, you're deceiving yourself. And isn't that what happens when we become overly judgmental? We think we have something of value or worth on the basis of how well we've lived up to at least one of the commandments this week. Well, I haven't gone on a murder spree this week, so God must love me. The only reason we have to boast before the throne of grace is the cross of Christ. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast in anything but that. 
in that alone. Here Christ is calling us to examine our own hearts and knowing our own sin and dealing with it so that we might be enabled to help others who are caught in similar sins as well for their good and not for their destruction, for their restoration, and we hope and pray not for their damnation. So proper discretion is needed. So on the one hand, Jesus says don't judge, or we might say don't be judgmental in that kind of snooty sense. But now Jesus gives another directive we see in verse 6 that has to help kind of keep things in line. He now begins to speak of pigs and dogs. Don't cast your pearls before swine. We might perhaps say, Jesus, that does not sound very winsome. Especially when we recognize He is in fact talking about particular people. Are we, we might say, Lord, are you... Are you contradicting the very thing you said in these first five verses? Don't be judgmental, and yet you're turning around and calling particular people dogs. The apostles do the same thing. And so you know, they're not talking about Fido or Gus or any other type of dog in terms of a canine. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, but where are the dogs? Those false teachers. 2 Peter chapter 2, entire chapter, Peter is focusing on a warning, an admonition to the people of God, to the church. It says, Beware of the false teachers and prophets, those who seek to promote a promiscuous living and claim that it is somehow compatible with the Christian faith. For they are as dogs who return to their vomit. And like I said, Paul uses similar language to speak of those who would seek to promote justification by works. Elsewhere, Jesus speaks of pearls and uses it to describe that gospel treasure that we have. And so it seems that Jesus is saying, don't, the gospel that we have been entrusted with, don't cast it before swine and dogs. Those false teachers and false prophets. And we start asking, what is it that Jesus is getting at here? And this is where I think Proverbs 9 is helpful in clarifying and illuminating what I think Jesus is getting at here. Proverbs chapter 9, Solomon makes a distinction between two types of fools, the simpleton and the scoffer. Over and over again in the first nine chapters of Proverbs, there are multiple categories of fools that uh, Solomon speaks about. One is the simpleton, the one who is kind of uncommitted, unsure of what to do, the one who is in need of further instruction and aid, uh, but you know, is living a sinful lifestyle, but doesn't know any better, as it were. And yet there's another type of fool who is the scoffer, who knows what is right, and not only rejects it, but mocks it and scorns it. And Solomon says, do not reprove a scoffer, because they will seek to tear you to shreds. I think this is something similar to what Jesus is getting at here. There comes a point in time in exercising wisdom 
to know when it is time to walk away. Jesus is going to be very clear about this, even in terms of evangelization, uh, with the disciples in some of these later chapters. When he sends out his disciples throughout the towns and he has them preach the gospel, there are going to be some who want to, who don't understand those who struggle with the faith, those who will need continual correction and reasoning with. <coughs> you think of Paul who reasons in the synagogues in certain places for multiple years. And yet there are also particular places where the people absolutely want nothing to do with it. They hate it. They refuse it. They seek um, uh, to put them to death. And Jesus says to the disciples, shake the dust off of your feet and move on. comes a point in time at several points in Paul's ministry. For instance, the, the synagogue in Corinth where Paul says, that's it. I'm shaking the dust off of my feet. It's time for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. There comes a point in time in and casting our pearls, where it actually becomes unwise to continue casting those pearls before certain individuals. And man, what a difficult decision that is to make. It's a warning that Jesus gives to his disciples. It's a warning that we also should give as well. But man, how could anybody ever properly discern that if they have a judgmental and critical attitude? Because how easy would it... for, would it be for us to act like you know, the disciples when they're going from town to town and, and there are certain towns that reject the gospel and they go, oh Lord, don't you want us to call down fire from heaven? She says, you don't know what you're asking. And he corrects them for that. What Jesus is teaching us here, I think, is how to live wisely in this world. On the one hand, in interacting with sinners, we are not to judge. We're to seek the restoration But also, in one sense, you might say that even though we're going to be persecuted, you don't want to put yourselves in those situations where you're going to end up being torn to shreds unnecessarily, we might say. You you notice this here. This is what Jesus says in verse 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest what happens? What happens if you do that? Lest they trample them underfoot, those gospel treasure, and they turn and attack you. You think of the various uh, wisdom warnings that's given to us throughout the New Testament. For instance, Titus chapter 3, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You know, some of us might just read uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, and go, well, I shouldn't judge, so I'm going to keep putting myself in this situation over and over again with this divisive person and not do anything about it other than just kind of putting up with his shenanigans. And yet there's an actual warning that even though we're called to deal with people and gently restore them, there comes a point in time where you actually have to say enough is enough. I'm not going to tolerate this anymore. Paul clearly says, have nothing more to do with him if after several times you warn him. That sounds mean. And that's why I think verse 6 has to be taken in tandem with verses 1 to 5. Again, thinking these as, as warnings against two extremes. Question, of course, is when do you know when to do which? You know, on the one hand, if we could summarize these few verses, Christ condemns critical attitudes. We ask ourselves as we examine our hearts, should this be the attitude of the man who has been forgiven? How can we seek the good of those whom our hearts secretly condemn? 
But Jesus also here warns against that a blanket endorsement of sloppy agape. Christians are called to endure hardship and suffering, but we are also called to exercise wisdom and proper discretion. To quote Kenny Rogers, you've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. He's a country singer, by the way. I don't know if y'all listen to country music up here. I think what we have before us are three basic principles in living a wise life in terms of sharing the gospel. Avoiding these extremes of judgmentalism and then also of, for lack of a better word, becoming a doormat for people to trample upon. Both extremes are warned against. First, we should examine our own hearts. Second thing we should do is seek the restoration of others. Pursue reconciliation, not judgment. God alone is judge, not us. It is our duty in the midst of when being sinned against to entrust all things to the one who judges all things well. There is no room for a vigilante justice in the kingdom of Christ. And yet at the same time, we are also not called to pursue, if you are familiar with the Second World War, peace at all costs. Like Sir Neville Chamberlain with Adolf Hitler. We're called to use proper discretion. So here are the basic principles. The question is, I think for many of us, as we think through individual portions and, and uh, situations in our life, we go, okay, here are the principles our Savior gives us. What should I do? And this is why I read the following verses after that. Because what is it that, that Jesus says next? He then begins to speak of prayer. To ask and to seek and to knock to remind ourselves that as we seek to live wisely and we don't know what to do, to, to pray and ask for the Father to give us wisdom in these situations. These are difficult things, but we're reminded here that Christ is one greater than Solomon. Here's one who is wise and teaches us how to live wisely, and so he's giving us principles for wisdom in how we live in this world not to have critical spirits, but also to exercise proper discretion in how we deal with those around us. So let us pray and entrust ourselves to the one who does all things in perfect justice. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would bless uh, your word, and where we fall short in our understanding, we pray that you would help correct us and help us to understand it more fully, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.